Thanks, Peter. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you for coming today. If it's your first Sunday, like Jess said before, we're glad you guys are here. Uh, happy Thanksgiving to all of you. Happy Advent. Merry Christmas. They seem to all apply today. It's one weekend where they all apply, right? The, the planets align. Um, but we are in a ser- sermon series right now on the Gospel of John, if you're uh, just joining today um, or just recently. We, we've been here now for a couple of months, and we'll be in this book now, or we will be in the book for a year and a half or so. It's a, a longer book of the Bible one of the four gospel accounts of the New Testament. Uh, Today, Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover, so kind of a change of scenery. Uh, He's been in Galilee, uh, northern province. Now he's traveled south here uh, for this, um, uh, one of the three pilgrimage festivals uh, of the Jews, which brought them in uh, towards the city, uh, Passover being one of them. Uh, While he's there, he so-called cleanses the temple. Uh, There may be better words for that. We'll talk about that today, but it's where he drives out the money changers, with their livestock and animals and uh, empties out coin jars and flips over a few tables uh, while, while, he's, uh, while he's at it. One of my not important questions I've always had about this passage is how high do the tables go? You know, are we talking like eight feet here or just a couple of feet? Um, not important, but that's always been one of mine. Uh, one of the more intriguing, though, passages of, of the Gospels, all four of the Gospels include mention of this, which is kind of interesting. Uh, that's, uh, as many of you are aware, it's not always the case. The four Gospel accounts complement, but they don't necessarily uh, share verbatim all, all the same stuff, which is actually partly why we know they're legitimate and genuine. Um, if they were fabricated, they'd be, they'd be four identical copies uh, as an expression of uh, the, the four people making it up, right? And then they just uh, got it out to the, to the investigators that way. It's not the case. Uh, but all four Gospels uh, do have a version of this, uh, and today we're going to read John's version from chapter 2, verses 13 to 22, so we'll follow along on screen if you want, or turn in a Bible if you'd like to do that, or a phone app, and uh, then we'll come back and talk about a little bit more about why this passage is kind of cool, but kind of tricky, and then we'll dive in. All right, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. All right, so a couple of things just kind of off the cuff. Jesus here obviously is clearly upset. Uh, right? I kind of alluded to this before, sort of, but not really. But th- this is the only gospel story I can think of where Jesus actually takes time to fashion a weapon and, and to use it. Uh, you know, he's, uh, in, in a human sense, he's a carpenter, carpenter not a weapon designer. But uh, this is one, the, the one point where he does take time to sit down, make a weapon, uh, and, and use it, uh, which is uh, interesting. Some of you guys may be thinking, I thought this guy was supposed to be a pacifist or something. Uh, he, well, it kind of is and kind of isn't. Uh, I would say that's not the word uh, you should put to Jesus uh, primarily. There are other things like Savior uh, and many others, King, uh, that he is uh, more should be known by. But i um, not going to go into that too much today. But it is uh, maybe striking uh, to you, uh, more, some of you more than others maybe, but uh, it should be actually. It's, it's different. Jesus doesn't do this. Um, 
elsewhere. This is a, a unique story. Uh, but, that, but that said, it makes this passage kind of difficult to interpret. You know, it, it's, uh, you know, whether it be the lack of clarity on why exactly Jesus is angry, the Old Testament passages that the gospel writers cite or the things that Jesus says uh, in, in light of it are a little bit cryptic. Um, and where the story seems to go from here, John's account is different from the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in some ways, especially how the passage ends. And um, I, I think I said this first service too, but the, the, the way it ends is, is unique and it's very helpful. Uh, sometimes the Bible is, um, uh, maybe it's bad to say it this way, but it, it's not as helpful in terms of helping us with interp- interpretation. It kind of says, you know, it's more up to us to do the heavy lifting when it comes to meaning. But here it actually hands us on a platter uh, I think the point, the, the last three things. So I'm kind of wrecking the ending, which is totally fine. Uh, we'll we'll kind of, in some sense, start there. He connects, it, he connects it with himself, right? The whole point is to talk about the temple of his body in, in a lot of ways. So we'll, um, I want to take us back through this, though, and we'll take the, the scenic route to get there, but we do at least see that here um, uh, uh, off the cuff. Now, in, uh, in my experience, uh, there, there are two... Uh, predominant views on this story. This is not to say that there aren't other views or that the two I'm going to lay out don't overlap in some way, uh, but I think uh, understanding these two perspectives and how, they, and how those two things perspectives differ uh, really helps grant some, some clarity. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time on these things, uh, but you'll at least get the idea here. Uh, the first is the, the cleansing view. So I'm um, not going to ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you have heard of this story called something like the, the time when Jesus cleanses the temple before. Uh, it's a common thing. In fact, some of your Bibles, even the ESV translation that we use here, has that as a subtitle that is not part of the Bible. Those are things that translators put in to kind of help, help uh, with ease of recognition of sections and, and so forth. Uh, but that idea, at least, uh, would kind of uh, flow from this first perspective. It's the idea that Jesus is purifying the temple, sort of getting it back to what God intended in the beginning. So it essentially says God did something good with the temple in the Old Testament. Human beings perverted it, maybe making it more about money or greed, as we're seeing here uh, in a passage like today's. And then Jesus is now coming on the scene to cleanse it from that secondary thing. So if, once we fix the, the, the money changers issue, now we're getting it back to what God really intended. And so we're cleansing it from the impurities uh, that, that kind of uh, idea. So uh, proponents of this view like to look at the, the, the phrase, zeal, zeal for the Lord's house will consume me, in other gospels where it says, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. And they kind of derive from this that Jesus' main concern is getting the temple back to its original purpose. One of the big problems with this view, though, there are many, but one of the big ones is that it doesn't jive with how Jesus talks about and interacts with the temple elsewhere. And in the big picture, Jesus doesn't come into the world to purify the old system and to kind of get us back to basics in that regard, but to replace it. Uh, it's called a New Testament for a reason, not old 2.0 or old B or something, but, uh, but new. And so that leads me to the second view, which is uh, the, the view I think has a lot more merit to it, which uh, is called the overturning view. This view says that like Jesus overturned the tables, he was beginning here in the Gospels, the early parts of the Gospel accounts, to overturn the temple and everything it represented. So it's a much more comprehensive take on what Jesus is doing. It makes it less about 
the people, the money changers, though that's a part of it, obviously, but more about the nature of the Old Testament temple itself and what that temple was kind of wrapped up with uh, religiously and in the life of, of the, you know, the, the Jew every day, uh, the worshiping Jew and so forth, in covenant with God in that Old Testament kind of way. I think it takes more seriously the fact that Jesus is angry, uh, this view does, and that he fashions a weapon out of, out of cords at all. Uh, you know, some questions that kind of come from this are, why doesn't Jesus fashion whips and cords elsewhere in the Gospels when people sin? Uh, he'd be doing it every day too, right? Like every like, hour he'd be making some kind of weapon, right? Uh, but he doesn't do that. This is the only time. He, he responds very differently to sin uh, elsewhere. And, uh, um, you know, you could say, not that this is like out of control anger, or sinful anger. Jesus is perfect. This is a righteous display. But at the same time, his response to sin, and stories might be coming to mind as I say this, is much more patient. Uh, it's much more grace-filled. Uh, it's much more kind of passovering. Uh, in, in, in posture and, and in look. And so, um, but it's, it's, a, it's an important question to at least consider at this point is why doesn't he do this elsewhere? Um, and in fact, if, if we're only here talking about the money changers and maybe getting them out of the temple, uh, it seems to kind of be an overreaction, doesn't it? Like, if Jesus is just, if, if the point, like some say, is just to get the money changers out of the temple courts where they're supposed to be, uh, they seem to be, part of the problem here seems to be that they were inside the temple. So if, if Jesus is just like relocating the money changers to get them out of the temple, then why are you flipping tables? Why are you taking time to empty out jars of coins? Why are you driving out uh, animals as well? Why are you making a weapon? Why are you angry? It just doesn't make sense. And so, that, that, but the answer to those questions here, I think, uh, is... Uh, that the tension in them is, is the, nat- the, the essence of this second view, which is that Jesus is literally doing damage to the temple here. And he's at least temporarily making it harder for people to offer sacrifices. Um, one common take on, which sort of fits more in the first view um, on this passage, is that Jesus um, didn't want it to be hard for people to offer sacrifice. He wanted ease of worship and money changers within the temple, even though they were necessary for people to buy their sacrifices, uh, it was making it hard for them to, to worship. The problem with that perspective, though, is that Jesus is actually making it hard for, uh, at least temporarily impossible for people to worship because he's just causing this ruckus, but he's dumping out the money, he's messing with the books, he's driving out the ones who are, have the authority to grant animals to people and, and, and give them to people, um, when they're being paid for them and so forth. So Jesus is literally making it harder for people to offer sacrifice and to worship in the Old Testament uh, temple. Uh, Past this, you know, other gospel accounts actually mention Jesus cursing the temple in places like Mark 13, kind of by way of the fig tree, if you know that story. And he talks about how it will be taken up and thrown into the heart of the sea, which is a symbol of divine judgment. Uh, Elsewhere, he talks about how the temple will be destroyed physically in the future, which came true in AD 70 and has still never been rebuilt, uh, even to this day. But the best argument, I think, for this view, uh, even though all of that is important, is that it's clear that this passage uh, is intending to show us how Jesus replaces the temple with his own body. That's why I kind of alluded to this before as well, but that's the point. That's how it ends. That's the trajectory. And the movement of the passage is to move from physical temple to 
his body. If there was a word, if there was a word you would put to that, it's replacement. It's not blending. It's not purifying the old way, but moving on from it. Uh, John's account, I think, makes it quite clear that this has, has less to do with a little bit of cleansing and more to do with preparing the way for the gospel. Uh, destroying for the sake of putting up a new thing uh, in its place. Kind of like uh, remodels happen a lot in homes, right? You tear down something first so you have the space to rebuild it. Um, that's kind of what's happening here. It's, there's a tearing down, uh, effectively looking like Jesus bringing damage to the Old Testament temple, um, and, and him being a harbinger of a time where that will actually happen on a much higher level. This is just a, a whisper and a glimpse here, this story. Uh, but a harbinger of a time where his body will be the new way that sinners connect with God. His bloodied body, his crucified body, he is the new way that we enter into God's presence through belief in him. Uh, not by way of um, pilgrimage, uh, religious sacrifice, good works, or any such thing, uh, but only through faith in Jesus Christ alone. All right, so if this latter view then is true, uh, the question I want to explore next is like, what is this actually saying to us then? Uh, what else is going on here in this passage thematically that teaches us about the gospel of Jesus Christ that really helps us to hear God's voice? call out to us and say, this is what I'm like, and this is how you, you should read my word. It's a dynamic story with contrast, not a static, flat one without it. Uh, even though it's all his word, the old is giving way to something better. And um, if we don't see that, we, we miss the whole thing. The first uh, two things, the first is uh, the problem with money and trading, uh, I think is you know, at face value, even like the two perspectives I talked about before would acknowledge this. This is kind of where they'd overlap a bit. I don't think the first view is like entirely wrong or anything in, in every sense of the word because both would agree here. But what, what I would add, though, is that it's, it's more than the locale, the location of the money changers, and it's more uh, comprehensive. It is, uh, it, it's the principle uh, of the idea. So, uh, a little bit of background here, if you're new to this stuff. Uh, the temple in the Old Testament was the center of God's symbolic presence. And in some ways, this is still Old Testament times because Jesus hasn't died yet. Uh, the, the New Testament does not begin at Christmas. The Bible never says that. It, it says it very clearly begins, though, when Jesus dies. Uh, the, in, in, until he spills his blood, until that covenant is made through blood, uh, there's no new covenant, no New Testament, no reconciliation of God with sinners. Uh, so Christmas is like uh, good news and that God became flesh, but it's actually bad news without Easter. Uh, without East, Good Friday and Easter, it's God is here to judge and we're all toast. Uh, basically, Merry Christmas, right? Uh, that's, that's, the, that's the message you get. But, uh, but Jesus is in part, because he's in between the times, acknowledging the past but also talking in a way that talks about the newness. He, he's acknowledging the temple and its existence. Uh, that's the whole setting, right? But, but by calling it my father's house. But he's also suggesting newness by calling it my father's house and not temple. Uh, it's being reclassified and it makes more sense to object to financial trading in a home more than a temple or a place of commerce or, or business, uh, you could say. Like, I don't know how this is really work in a home, but like in a home with, uh, with parents and kids, like if a kid wanted to play with, like if my kid said, Dad, can you play with me? You know, and I said, well, you got 20 bucks and we'll see. Like, 
that, that we don't do that, right? Like we don't say, well, what do you got for me first? And then I'll give you something. Like, commer- like trading and commerce and tit-for-tat type, type living is not really, doesn't happen in a home, right? But for Jesus to say, the temple's my father's house, um, and it, it makes more sense that he would object. That's why he would say, uh, like in verse uh, 16 here, don't, do, don't, make, don't mix my father's home with this idea of, of trading, what, and this is what really is irking Jesus here, is the principle of associating trade with God. The principle of associating trade with Heavenly Father. As if our, as if our relationship with God was built on a give-and-take type system of works and payments. No loving father doles out love based on a child's performance. It's, it's not, that's not what love is, not what grace is, right? That's how the law operates, the law, like even laws today, even, even take the Bible out of it, like the law today, like the law of the land, right? If, there's, if you break a law, there's a consequence usually for it. Uh, it's very tit for tat. That's how, that's how, it, that's how it works. It's a, almost a trade idea in some sense. The law operates that way, but not grace. And this is why uh, chapter 1, verse 17 is such a stage-setting verse for the whole book of John and for the whole Bible when he says, Moses brought the law, Jesus brings grace and truth. Those are contrasts. Those are not, it's not blended. We're not saying Jesus is now adding on to the good thing that Moses started with, but saying he's bringing something brand new that Moses anticipated and pointed to and prophetically uh, yearned for. But Jesus is a new thing, not, not an old thing 2.0. So Jesus then says, Do not make my father's house into a house of trade, because trade and grace are opposites. Trade is, again, about compromise and if-then propositions, conditionality. It says, I'll give you this if you first give me that. But grace is about one-way undeserved love. And Jesus' sacrifice, like the sacrifice of his body later in the story, that's not paid for by you. Like, you don't pay God for that. That's not traded for. That's not earned. He gives it freely in spite of you and me. Even though we were his enemies, his arch enemies, he loved us by giving his son to die in our place. That's grace. That's one way, undeserved love, that has no wisp of trade language at all. Or payment language. If anything, well, God's doing the pain. Jesus is doing the pain, right? But we're not doing the pain. We receive the gift completely free. In fact, Old Testament sacrifices, if it helps you to see the contrast, like in the old way, they were paid for. It's partly what's going on here in this story, right? Is it's, you see uh, people having to buy an animal to, to sacrifice it as a part of their worship uh, at Passover time. Um, but that, that follows because in the Old Testament, uh, sacrifices were associated with our works. Uh, but the one New Testament sacrifice isn't traded for, worked for, or purchased in any way. It's freely given, apart from anything you or I have ever done or will do for the rest of our lives. And it never changes because the Old New Testaments aren't mixed. Uh, I said this last week if you weren't here for this, but when Jesus changes water into wine, it's not diluted wine. It's not blended um, that would be, like, disgusting. It'd be like 50-50 water-wine mix. You'd spit it out of your mouth. It'd be lukewarm, uh, to use a different biblical metaphor. It'd be lukewarm, and we'd spit it out of our mouth. But it, it, is, it is pure wine. It's pure, un- undiluted. Uh, and 
And that, so, it, so it never, it's just like the Testaments. Like there's not, even though they're both gods, this isn't an anti-Old Testament idea. It is to say it, it, it has its day in the sun to point us to the better way. And, but now different times are here. Um, the, the, the way of man working their way towards God by being good uh, didn't work. It led to exile and to judgment and death. But now Christ is here with a better way. So that's the first uh, kind of angle on this is I think that this, um, this better explains the veracity by which Jesus is attacking the temple here than just the simple idea of, oh, there's a little bit of, there's some money changers inside the temple where they're supposed to be outside. Uh, I, I, I think that doesn't, um, not only does the scriptures not actually say that, it's a read-in, I don't think it explains the greater like, wealth of scripture behind Jesus' passion. Uh, and even going back to the Old Testament, God's passion to, to do this. Uh, you see it in his heart, God the Father's heart. A time was coming when this would happen. The prophets speak on this. Um, don't have time to go into all that uh, today. wish I did. This is the first thing, though, is the problem with money and trading, the problem with this principle and Jesus' clear message that his arrival meant the ending of that way of thinking religiously. It's not by what you do. It's not by performance. As a not a Christian yet or a Christian. I mean, this is for both, wherever you're at spiritually, this is the way we should think about Christianity. You don't become a Christian and then all of a sudden graduate into this, oh, now it is about diluting the wine. Now, now, it, now it is about, oh, we still offer a little bit of sacrifice. We still offer a pigeon every once, now and then. Don't you guys offer pigeons in your backyard to God sometime? Of course you don't. Like, no one does that. Like, we don't blend a little bit of law in with, in with a, 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 the bastion of grace. Like, it would dilute it right? Like, if you put a little bit of toilet water in your Kool-Aid at home, it'd be, like, done. Throw it down the drain. Done. Like, there's no, nothing about you when it comes to the gospel. It's all about him and how much he loves you and and what what he did for you. Okay. Uh, But the second thing I would say it builds on this, uh, the second thing Jesus is doing here is prefiguring uh, another temple whipping. Uh, Verse 18 and following, the Jews said to him, what sign do you give us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Okay, so again, I I, I said this before, uh, but this is one of those places where God and his sovereign will and, and wisdom just wanted to make this really, really clear. It's handed to us on a platter. And maybe you can see it, but the the direct correlation Jesus makes between the temple and his body. And that is, as he's damaging the physical temple, or or doing the driving out of the money changers and flipping tables, as he's doing that, or right after, he says, damage this temple, pointing to his body, and I will raise it up. Do you guys see that connection? It's pretty clear, right? But still a little bit cryptic, but handed to us. Damage this temple, and I will raise it up. And they don't get it, right? Which is, I mean, this is like, if you know, this is kind of like gospel, gospel 101 stuff, where it's like, you see this all the time, where, where Jesus says something, and people are like, you know, thinking they got it, but they're totally like on a different wavelength. Uh, it gets humorous sometimes. But they don't understand that he was talking about, and disciples didn't either, about his body. The part of Jesus' intentions here in whipping the temple and disrupting it and bringing damage to it was to prefigure his own whipping. 
when in John 19.1 it says, Pilate took Jesus and whipped him, flogged him. Or like in Luke 22, uh, like the coins were poured out, right? Uh, Jesus is saying, there's another temple that's going to come, it's going to be me, and I will have part of me poured out as well. It won't be coins, it'll be my blood. And that's what really matters here. See, there's a lot of layers to this, there's a lot going on, a lot of messages being sent, but we can't miss this, is that the Bible is a tale of two temples, a physical one and a spiritual one. And they in some ways relate, and they in some ways greatly contrast. And we have to have kind of buckets for both ideas, or it just doesn't make a lot of sense to us. This is, though, one of the areas where they relate. Jesus is saying, what I'm doing to the temple now, others will do to me later. I'm whipping brick and mortar. Uh, The Gentiles will whip me and flog me in in in. rip to shreds into ribbons my flesh on my back before laying me on a cross and nailing me to it. But this, and my blood will be poured out to establish a new testament in my blood. See, do you see again how the destruction of the old, the temple and what it represents gives way to a new thing, but it's really the destruction of Jesus that leads to the new way. Like without his destruction, without him being raised to the ground, then there, there is no forgiveness of sins. There's no purification. There's no union with God. And so, so Jesus' actions in the gospel sometimes have a pragmatic and a symbolic side to them. This is one of those places where you have both. There's layers. Uh, if we miss the latter, though, we miss the greater point. This also might be why Jesus drives out animals, too. It's not just money changers being in the wrong spot. Hey, guys, you should take your stuff outside. Don't mess with this. It's not, that's not his message. He drives the animals out too, uh, which probably signifies that one day, Jesus is saying, one day animal sacrifice is going to come to an end as well because I'm replacing it. Just like I'm replacing the law and the temple and the priesthood and the, the idea of connecting with God based on what we do, like I'm replacing all of that, I'm replacing the animals as well. There's no more sacrifice of lambs. I'm the true lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John 1.29, right? I'm the lamb. I'm replacing it. I'm not saying I'm purifying. Like, here's the right way to sacrifice lambs. You guys have forgotten how to sacrifice well, so I'm telling you how to do it to get you back to basics. That's not his message, right? None of you do that, which is good. Don't start. None of you do that. It's the same with every aspect, though, of the old system. Jesus isn't coming in and saying, you guys have failed in keeping the Ten Commandments, so I'm going to help you turn you five degrees morally and kind of get you back on the right path, and I'm here as your advice giver and life coach when you mess up. That's not Christianity. We're no longer under the law, including the Ten Commandments, which is not freedom, a free pass to sin. It's just to say, you can't keep them. The, the, the solution is not in moral willpower and moral effort. It is in blood. Not in stone-cold tablets of the law, but a living, breathing human being like you and me, who was also the Son of God, who looked at you and said, I love you, threw his arms around you and was whipped in your place, who took the brunt. And you see, that's what, that's the big so what here, I think, is Our view on Jesus' motives here is everything. 
uh, it's directly correlated to what application we derive from it. Because if you read this perspective from a cleansing view, then you'll probably end up with some kind of takeaway that says, Jesus gets angry at me when I'm greedy or when I take advantage of people. And now he's fashioning a whip. He's going to come into my life and discipline me or judge me in some way. I mean, how can you not read that eventually into the story if the whole point of Jesus is to address sin by polishing and fixing and getting us back to doing and to being good and to following God's commandments? How can you not? And, and so, and, but then, then like the rubber really meets the road when we realize that, well, I'm greedy every day or I'm selfish or I'm um, unloving and I want things that I shouldn't want and I want more of things I already have. I mean, who can't, who can't affirm this stuff, right? You guys have this, right? See, the problem with this view is uh, it's myriad. I mean, in one sense, we might say, well, great, we have that perspective. Yes, Jesus is angry at sin. That's a good thing because he's good. He's the essence of goodness. He's not aloof to it. Um, he's grieved over sin. But to those of you who are Christians, does this idea right here constitute your everyday relationship with him? That Jesus' posture towards you is directly dictated by your actions? In this case, whether you're greedy or not? If so, are you okay with that idea? Experientially and biblically? Because it means that you're basically making Jesus angry with you all day long. And it means that the truth, somehow, the truth here of the Bible is that, um, is that God's upset. He's just upset with you. And he gets angry. He's uh, at best tolerating you. Um, does that jive with what the rest of the Bible says about his love and his grace? Is that, the bigger question is, is, is that the gospel? And the answer to, to this, of course, is a glorious no. That, that, that's not the gospel. The lesson here is not that Jesus is upset with you, greedy people like me. Uh, the, the, the message is that he came to war against it. Save us. Uh, if you are in Christ, God is not mad at you. You should never think of God in those terms, especially after you sin in the worst of ways. Grieved? Yes. Uh, mad? Upset? Is he all of a sudden weapon-fashioning weapon Jesus? No, that's not what this passage is about. As Christians, we believe that God poured his anger out elsewhere. Right? Like, we believe in a wrathful God, but we believe in a loving God who put his wrath on his son in our place on Good Friday. It was displaced from us. It was, so now we believe it passes over. That's the idea of Passover. It passovers us. God is a God throughout the whole Bible, Old and New Testaments, who, want, who wants judgment to pass over people and go elsewhere. And the reality is, for Christians, we believe that elsewhere was his son. It fell on his son in our place, willingly. He, he went there willingly for us. So what's happening in, in John 2 is that Jesus is upset with the systems of requirements. That's what he's angry at. A heavy yokes laid upon your neck that you can't keep morally. Uh, he's upset with the anxiety that moralism causes you. Uh, the comparison complexes that, 
that it sets up in your and my heart as we look at other Christians and think that maybe they're better than us. Jesus is upset with temples made by human hands. Uh, This is probably the spirit of what the Jews mean here when they say, you will do in three days what took us 46 years to accomplish? Whatever, Nazarene. And they dismiss him. But of course, this is the same thing as saying, how dare you poke at the ultimate symbol of human achievement? Like, we built that. 46 years is supposed to take 150. But look at how fast, look at how amazing it is. See how they're bragging? There's a spirit of pride here. You can do it faster and better? What are you talking about? But this is the point of the Bible. Jesus is the ultimate symbol of divine achievement at the expense of human achievement. Not blended. At the expense. Because we're saved by grace, not by works. And not by a grace-works mix. We're saved not by a temple made with hands, but a temple made without hands. Um, This is a, uh, I guess I'd call this kind of a cousin theme to this passage. It's not in uh, full view, but some of you maybe have read this before. Uh, Acts 7, Stephen's speech. It's in the Old Testament and the prophets. Even the narratives, I believe, at one point. Uh, God speaks about this day uh, in in his own terms, which is interesting. Bringing down his own system, uh, intending it to fail. Uh, planned obsolescence, that idea, uh, to establish the new. But the idea just being um, movement in the story from human hands to God's hands. Uh, things humans made to things God's, God made. Uh, circumcisions talk this way about, in these terms too, circumcision made with human hands in the Old Testament, like boys when they were circumcised on the eighth day with human hands. In the New Testament, it talks about a circumcision made without human hands. In other words, God does it Entirely. You don't do it at all. You don't circumcise the sin off of your hearts, so to speak. It's the same with the temple. There's two temples in the Bible. One's made by humans, one's made by God. They aren't blended because God's grace and your works are not blended. It's either or, guys. This is not a, there, there are points for both and in theology. Jesus is both human and divine. This is not one of those points. It's either or. Are you drinking entirely from the undiluted fountain of God's grace or are you mucking it up with your good deeds, with your attempts at being pure, with your attempts at pilgrimaging towards God and impressing him, with any kind of if-then way of thinking? Is, Is it the one or the other? It can't be both. This is like the argument in the Bible. The argument in the New Testament letters is churches are drifting from this idea and Paul writes a letter back to correct them. They're not denying grace, they're adding to it. Grace is good, but we also need to do this. Grace is good, but we also have to obey all of these things. Grace is good, but we also have to pay God back with our lives in some some capacity. Uh, That way of thinking is from the pit of hell. Uh, did Jesus die sufficiently for you or not? Or just kind of, right? I mean, these, these are the questions we have to, we have to reckon with. Is, is it enough or is it not? Like, what do you think? What do you believe? And this is what Jesus is upset about. He's upset about things that steal your happiness and steal your joy and dilute grace and make it more about you and less about him. This is why he's angry. 
This much better explains his anger than just all the money changers went inside. Uh, you know, get them out there. It doesn't explain it. Jesus is making a new way. And he's angry and upset at things that flirt with you religiously, that bolster you, that make the gospel into some kind of to-do list. And Jesus fashions a whip, the only time he makes a weapon, because it's that big of deal. You know, ultimately, this passage is about pain. Uh, it, it's about Jesus prefiguring how he will one day be whipped, not you, so we might be brought into the temple of God's presence without pretense, condition, expectation, or form of payment. And we'll be with him forever in our Father's house, in that place without commerce, trade, or work, but only love, rest, and grace forever. Amen. Father, we uh, thank you so much for this passage. Please, please, God, help us to believe in you uh, more and more. I pray that as we sing this last song and uh, take communion or just, again, just pour out our hearts to you, God, in, in worship as we sing about the wondrous cross that you would um, help our hearts to believe the gospel and to move on from a temples built by the efforts of humans and actually be Christian, actually be distinctly Christian in how we move to a temple not touched once by our fingers. But it's completely set up, uh, first destroyed, but then resurrected three days later, uh, set up to establish a New Testament where we meet with God through the sacrifice of his son and nowhere else, where his blood was poured out uh, for sinners, for enemies, and uh, that we might be brought in. So God, humble us, wreck our pride. This is a humbling, prideful, offensive but beautiful message. It's, both, it's all that at the same time. It has to be, uh, as, as the Bible itself says uh, elsewhere. But experientially, this is, what, this is what it is. Very, very, very difficult to believe, and yet it's the best thing we've ever heard. It's both, or we prayed it would be. Um, God, grow our church doctrinally. I pray we grow in the gospel, in the faith, live by the Spirit, not by the flesh by your work within us as we love each other and our city and our neighbors, not by the, not by the strength of human hands and human effort. Um, pray this all in your name. Amen.